Welcome to episode 75 of The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. Today my guest is Melissa Bunny Elian, and you may recognize that name because her work was just featured on The Picture Show, which is National Public Radio's site for photo stories, for her work on Afropunk, uh, titled Afropunk Brings the Black Lives Matter Ethos Abroad. You may also know her from her recent takeover of the Women Photograph Instagram account, which she just wrapped up, so that means Bunny can now take over the Real Photo Show Instagram account, which should be happening soon, so keep an eye out for that. Okay, so before we get to the episode, let's do some announcements. My friends over at Float Magazine, Donna Sterling and Yoav Friedlander, co-curated a show called The Vernacular of Landscape, uh, which opens Friday, September 14th from 7 to 9 p.m., It's at Usagi, New York at 163 Plymouth Street in Brooklyn, New York. And our good friend Patrice Helmar is back from Alaska, so that means Marble Hill Camera Club is back on. Uh, That will be meeting Saturday, September 15th from 4.30 to 9.30 p.m. at Gotcher Hall, uh, 657 Fairview Avenue, Queens, New York. And now some news from the JKC Gallery. Former co-host of The Photo Show, Kai McBride, will be showing his work, Sky's Gone Out, A Meditation on 9-11, on September 12th, which is this Wednesday. Uh, The reception is 5 to 7 p.m., and then Kai will talk about his work starting at 6 p.m. You may have seen some of the install shots on the Instagram account. Uh, We still have a little bit of work to do that we'll finish up on Monday, so it should all be ready to go by Wednesday. And then Kai and I will carpool down to the gallery, and we'll probably pick up Patrice Helmar along the way, so please join us if you can. And while we're on the JKC gallery, Ryan Casey's show, Loss Event, closed, and it was fantastic. We had a great turnout. I recorded an episode of the show with Ryan at her talk. It was quite moving as she talked about the tragic loss of her friend. And that episode should be airing in a couple weeks. But really, I just want to thank everyone for the wonderful turnout that we had. I just want to mention two more things. Sasha Waters Fryer's documentary, Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, is starting to screen. In fact, from Sasha's post, it looks like three of the screenings are already sold out. It's coming up at the Film Forum in New York City this week, but there are a lot more screenings. And you can find those out on Facebook. Uh, Look for Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, or look for Sasha Waters Fryer, and she will have those posted. All right, and last but not least... Uh, Charles Traub, who has been incredibly generous uh, as a sponsor of this show, has a new book called Taradiddle, and we will be doing a live show to talk about that work uh, and about Charles at the MFA Programs Theater, which is affectionately known as The Big Room. I'll have more details about that as we get closer to the proposed October date. All right, so my guest again is Melissa Bunny Ellian, and let me read a little bit from her website. Bunny's work has been published in the New York Times, NBC News, Quartz, ESPN, NPR, BuzzFeed, and Glamour. She's also produced work for various organizations like Google, the Equal Justice Initiative, and UN Women. Bunny started shooting video in 2010 at the Journal News, and then in 2013 she began freelancing as a photojournalist after enrolling in Columbia Journalism School. 
In May 2016, she was hired as a photo editor by NBC News, where she'd remain throughout the election year. She is an alum of the Missouri Photo Workshop, and she is the recipient of a Pulitzer Center grant for a research trip to South Africa for her long-form multimedia analysis on the global impact of Afropunk. Uh, Bunny will be graduating Columbia School of Journalism in 2019. And by the way, we talk about all of that on the show. Uh, Bunny is also an alum of the Bronx Documentary Center and one of the original members of the Bronx Photo League. That's something I didn't know about until I spoke with her. And again, her work on the Afropunk Music Festival was just featured on NPR's photo story site called The Picture Show. Uh, I've linked to that on therealphotoshow.com. And some things you might not know about Bunny, uh, she was a pre-med major at SUNY Albany, and we'll talk about how that still informs her work today. We'll also talk about politics and race and how her work explores the cultural implications of the African diaspora, which is directly tied to Bunny's exploration of her own identity. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. from uh yonkers oh how did you end up in yonkers i grew up there oh okay so um i actually that was going to be the one of the, my questions um you went to suny albany yes yeah for undergrad yeah what brought you there i did spend one year at penn state i thought i was going to do advertising oh and so i switched schools partially because it was really expensive out of state and oh, then yeah. Um, my sister went to SUNY Albany. She was doing really well, so I figured, save money, go closer to home. Yeah. Is that when you switched to pre-med? Yes. So I had this idea that I wanted to do something that was, like, prestigious and people could, like, respect me. Yeah. And I had the idea of, like, having... Oh, yeah. Have um, some water. <laughs> my license plate say, like, MD on it, like, stuff like that. <laughs> you... <laughs> Yeah. You were thinking uh, very far ahead. Yeah, I do that. It's a problem, actually. I think about the end result, and then I get really excited about it. That's all right. I um, think it's <laughs> a good way to sort of set goals. Yeah, but yeah. it was an important detour. Yeah. Um, I, I read um, an interview d- you did on bust.com, mm-hmm. and and uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, the, the social sciences and the, the behavioral sciences, things like that that you studied as, a pre- as pre-med mm-hmm. help inform your work. It does. Like, I would be in class. It could be genetics or intro to population, something like that. I forgot the names. But I would be jotting notes about, like, how what I'm doing or what I'm learning, like, relates back to society. And so, like, in my, if I still had those notebooks, Uh you'd probably see what I was thinking when the teacher was giving their lecture. And I'm sure it would connect to things you, the way you talk about your work, right? Yeah, I mean, like, one example I can give just the example of like creating a new species, um, how something like a divergent event can separate an island and then after how many years it's they can't mate anymore. Mm. So when I heard that, I just thought of um, the polarization in America, which was nowhere near what it is today and how, you know, we're continuously getting further and further away from each other. Yeah, the way we uh, isolate ourselves or we were beginning to lose the ability to communicate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know, I, there is a, a thread, I think, that runs through your work. I, I don't think. You've even said it. And so it wasn't surprising to me when I learned that one of your earliest influences was August Sander, mm-hmm. who used the camera, you know, to uh, uh, end portraiture in this very democratic method, right? right? This method of treating everyone with equal respect. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about it. You even uh, recently posted, I think, on Instagram this, um, like, 99% of my job is for other humans to see the humans I'm photographing also as humans. Yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, 99% of my job is convincing other humans that humans are humans. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of what I feel like I do just in seeing the fullness of somebody, no matter what, how they appear, and always giving the benefit of the doubt. And you, um, you received, a, is it a Pulitzer? I always say it wrong. Pulitzer. A Pulitzer Center grant uh, for yes. work you were doing in South Africa? Yeah, I'm a uh, story coming out this week. Oh, wow. Afropunk, it's like a political and social analysis and how it relates to social movements. And what I'm concluding is that Afropunk is itself a movement. And I'm comparing that to like social science texts and talking to people that I've met in Paris and London and Johannesburg and Brooklyn about the concert and how they experience it. Uh, is the, the concert is uh, an annual concert? or It's annual, and now it's gone global. So oh. it happens more than, I think, like five times. Oh, okay. Is yeah. it simultaneous, or is it just whenever? Yeah, no, it, it changes throughout the year. But Brooklyn's always like the last weekend in August. Oh, okay. And then uh, Paris just took place a few weeks ago in July. Did you go to that one? I didn't. I had uh, a big fear of missing out, a FOMO moment. I was oh, like, no, yeah. I couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah. How did you end up at the South Africa one then? I went to that one because it was the first time Afropunk was going to be in on the continent of Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to see, you know, Afropunk is all about Afrocentricity. So... I was curious, like, what could Afropunk lend to South Africans and whoever else came from the continent? And it's actually one thing that was really amazing to me about South Africa is that our histories, like United States and South Africa, it's like the same exact template. The differences is the details and like the time periods, like the timeline. But I feel like, you know, they're a majority black nation, but they're still treated as if they were minority. Mm -hmm. And so just sitting and listening to people air out their grievances and have them be so similar to like what uh, people of color experience in America. I thought that was really a beautiful thing to see and to see that Afropunk is like bridging the diaspora through music. You're a multimedia journalist, right? Yes. Were you there writing, shooting video, shooting photography? Yes, I was doing that madness of multimedia. (laughs) That's like, I like to do, um, I call them multimedia packages. Mm -hmm. And I try to make sure each element is different. So, well, I I usually go into Afropunk and do portraits. This time I just like kicked back a little bit and just did a more documentary style. And I didn't go too in-depth with the photos because I was doing video and I was really primarily focusing on my written piece. Mm. When you say you, you try to do something different, you mean between the, the media, so video might be one thing, you might mm-hmm. write something different, then f- the photographs will be their own thing as well? Yes. Okay. Except this time, what happened was everything fed off of each other. So one thing I just don't want to do is like repeat the same thing. But um, 
I like to make sure that each element adds to like the understanding. So my photos, you'll see the people that I talk about in the story and in the video. You said that that's coming out soon? Yes. Where? Several different places. I'm talking to, well, definitely with The Undefeated, which is part of ESPN. NPR has expressed interest. Nice. A little late in getting that to them, but hopefully they take it. (laughs) (laughs) Getting that out today. And that should be part of their music section. And I'm talking to other publications. I'm going to photograph the Brooklyn event for New York Times this weekend. Oh, so that's coming. Yes. So I'm preparing for that currently. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's, It's at... SUNY Albany that you discover, oh, I'm blanking on the name, the University Photo Service? Yes. Mm -hmm. Was that a club or a job or what is that? (laughs) It's a student group. Oh, okay. So around the time where I felt like I wasn't, so for like two years, I was like really gung-ho on pre-med and my career in anesthesiology or that's what I was thinking. And eventually I, I felt myself not like losing, I was losing interest it wasn't lining up with what I envisioned my life to be. So around the time that I was like, okay, I always took pictures and I always have written and kept a journal. I hadn't yet uh, switched over to journalism, but then when I first started considering the camera as a something to explore, a tool to explore, seriously, I came across a, I just was randomly walking through the art building. I had no art classes at that time. I was, And um, they... They had like a little poster. It's like, come join photography classes, photography club. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. And then, um, but you, you started photographing in high school, I think I read. Yeah. yeah. Um, was, was that was that also without classes or did you take photo classes? Yeah. Or? No, there was no photo classes, but I was part of yearbook, but I don't, I don't remember that, but I looked back. But um, yeah, no, I just always had a point and shoot mm-hmm. that I took around and randomly was taking pictures with. It's a little bit of a... Um, kind of tradition on the show when uh, when we speak to people who have started in high school, we, we always uh, talk about why we started in high school. And it's it typically has something to do with being a little, someone who uh, had trouble making friends or was a little introverted or was that your case? No. I am not introverted. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I'm the kind of person that if there's someone quiet, I go up to talk to them, like out of the, out of the class. So it, it was in some ways the opposite. It was an extension of the way you reach out. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you why I started uh, or I just knew I always had to have my camera on me. It was a Sony side shot and the impetus to even wanting to have that camera was my sister had a camera we have like a nine-year age difference so she didn't trust me to hold her camera <laughs> so I was like fine I'm gonna get my own <laughs> and I just carried it ever since uh-huh. so when you joined the um, the photo club at, at SUNY Albany did you then switch majors did I think I had one more semester before I made the switch so and then what was your major after? journalism with biology minor oh wow so you did stay with some of the sciences. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, was that to uh, please your folks? No, that was just <laughs> okay. like to not go beyond. I had to stay an extra year. I didn't want to make it like two or three. Oh, yeah. Van Wilder style. So you had, um, you had pl- <laughs> the movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> Perpetual college student. <laughs> the, uh, so you, you had so many credits already in the medical sciences. Yeah, and like I said, I didn't yeah. I didn't really see it as a detour. Mm-hmm. It was just another way of investigating. It's just that I don't really have interest in animals. Yeah. Actually, yeah, no, my major was my minor was human biology. Mm-hmm. I was like I love animals, I just like don't want to know like how their bones are structured. 
<laughs> but but when you did switch your major, what did your uh, folks think of that? As good immigrant parents, they were very unhappy. Oh. <laughs> Are you um, parents from Haiti? Yes. And they came here in sometime in the 80s. So almost over 30 years mm-hmm. around. Yeah, over 30 years. Was that part of an exodus from Haiti? Was that part of uh, a turnover of government or anything? My like dad that? did say that things were getting worse, but my mom came first and then my dad and my sister and then I was born here. Mm-hmm. Your sister then was born in Haiti? Yeah. She was only maybe like five or six when she came. So they were probably pretty excited when you said you wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they were talking to everybody about that. Because <laughs> it's architect. I was like, no, doctor. It's like, whatever. <laughs> Sounds good to us. Uh-huh. So then was when I said I wanted to, well, first I was going to drop out of school. Ooh, that must have been thrilling. And I wanted to go to (laughs) France and be an au pair and learn French and just do all that. I still want to go to France. But um, yeah, but my dad said, if you don't graduate, then people are always going to assume and look at you at a high school level. So then I was like, okay, that's right. So I finished and but they were not happy but they were also supportive and got me my first camera. That's nice. Mm -hmm. I had a a similar experience. I started out as engineering at Lehigh uh, because that's what everyone was doing, all of my friends. And, but I spent all my, I started loving photography in high school and I did work for the yearbook, but I was uh, an introvert. (laughs) And uh, I've told the story before, so I'll, I'll keep it short, but I was photographing all the time. In fact, I used the, you know, university police darkroom to Mm -hmm. make prints because there was no photography at Lehigh. Yeah. But I, I also had that little, I don't know if it's a sense of guilt or just uh, the, the idea that going from uh, engineering to art school, oh, you must have been a bad student or you must mm-hmm. have had bad grades. And I did. You know, I was, I, I was fine. I was just, it just, I lost interest. Right. right. I had pretty good grades, maybe around B. Chemistry was just my hardest. I mm-hmm. was like always a C. But then also our teacher got fired because he sucked. So okay. <laughs> who knows what it really was? That's right. <laughs> But yeah, it was, nobody ever thought of it like that. They're just like, oh, that's a big change. Mm -hmm. So it was never, never a question of my ability. It's just like, what, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big shift. (laughs) And so how, so when did you graduate Albany? 2010. Yes. Okay. And when did you enter the Columbia School of Journalism? 2016. Okay, so there's a pretty big gap where yeah. you were working, right? Yeah. Working as a photographer and, and, and photo editor. and. I became a photo editor for a few months at the same time I started Columbia, which is really hectic. But oh, I imagine. I yeah. was doing photo and video before then. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of work were you doing in between? So I never thought I was going to go to grad school. I was actually super against it. Why were you super against it? At the time people were using it as like the job market sucks i'm just gonna stay in school oh so i always saw it as something like if you have a question then you need to go answer it and you need to continue your studies you shouldn't just sort of hide out there right (laughs) right it's too expensive (laughs) for all that yeah (laughs) so for three years i worked local news at the journal news it's where i cut my teeth chasing politicians or looking for really cute kids doing really cool things around after school And then I think 2013, I started freelancing in the city. So I I had this conscious notion that I wanted to do bigger news or news of national and international consequence. So, you know, the method of like small town newspaper to like bigger market, bigger market. So I went from like local news to like New York City. 
It's like a big leap. But um, I got got connected to Daily News, which was a big employer of me, mine for a while. Freelance? Yeah. And different video gigs that I couldn't scrounge up. Working in my industry was like super rare because we just had suffered like the first like culling mm-hmm. of reporters and um, printers. So and that was so that was your local news experience that you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one reporter was like, "You could tell how many people used to be here because you would take forever to find a parking space, and oh. now it was like really easy. Wow. And it was just like four empty parking lots like that yeah. I would pass." Because they also had printing services there. So it was like um, everywhere I went, I felt like was an impending doom somewhere <laughs> behind me. Yes, it was. I, and I again, I told this story just recently, actually on the show, but I'll recap quickly. Um, I took my students on a field trip to the Times of Trenton in Trenton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. not knowing you know, what it really was going to be. I was new to where I was teaching at Mercer. And uh, uh, the tour was just awful. It was, And this is where... The photo editor used to sit, and this is where our staff of photographers used to be, and this is where our printing press was. And mm-hmm. it, it was just this giant empty building with a handful of staff that were, you know, had uh, basically they had uh, all moved the operations to Newark. I didn't mm-hmm. even know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, why did you invite me? Yeah. <laughs> Here's your future, kids. Right? Enjoy. <laughs> Don't get into the business. <laughs> yeah, I remember I had this weird thought. There were four photo editors when I first got there. And for some reason, I had this fleeting thought, like, they're not all going to be here by the time I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, uh, you know, the Daily yeah. News just cut yeah. many, many people. Yeah, um, I was really sad to see that. Yeah. And I have, man, I have so many, like, I like to write too. And I have so many, like, theories that I want to get out and get mm-hmm. people's feedback. But one thing I've been, and I'm not greeting with my ideas, so if someone wants to explore this, but like the idea of, um, the idea of a discount and how what we're really discounting at the end of the day is people. And, you know, when that newsroom got shot up a few months ago in Maryland, Mm -hmm. that for some reason that stuck out in my head. It's like all this cutting we've been doing and now it's come back to the place that is supposed to warn us of these things. We're, um, I think right now, culturally, we're a simmering pressure cooker, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And every once in a while... Uh, you know, a whole bunch of steam gets let out right. uh, and we get all this violence and hatred. And See, the analogy that I get from my time in pre-med and animal, animal behavior, like if you take a squirrel, squirrels are pretty like chill animals, but if you get them in a corner, that's when they'll attack. Mm-hmm. And my, the analogy I always use is that we're on this table as a society, but we don't see that we're getting pushed closer to, closer to the edge. And we're comfortable because we're still on the table, but like now we're looking at the edge and we're like freaking out. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we look behind us and there's the end of the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all that time we had to like do something about it, but we didn't. Yeah. It really feels like we're in that moment right now, politically and socially and racially. Yeah. I mean, that's another area of interest, just like thresholds and the space in between. Mm Mm-hmm. And right now I feel like we are crossing over a threshold and... You know, in nature, you know, evolution just happens, like species die, this, you know, it just is cut and dry, it's very harsh. Right. But in society, like we hold on to things, even to our own detriment, just because that's how it has been before. But I feel like millennials are that bridge generation that we do know the analog ways 
for the most part, or at least that how they operated at minimum. But we also are open to like new things. I think that's completely true. I've had that conversation with a few millennials and and I, my students, obviously. You're also, I think, the generation that's going to figure out this job market in your own way, right? right? You're not relying on big companies, big corporations, long-term jobs. Uh, it really is a, a make-your-own-thing, uh, try to figure it out for yourselves. Kind yeah, of and, also, economy. and also be happy. Hmm. We've watched our parents give us everything that we needed, but also not have something in themselves. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, the burnout from 9 to 5 that you hate. And yeah, we're we're multitaskers, and I think that it could be a detriment, but it's also our strong suit. Like we don't imagine things like uh, staying in a company for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I would like to explore dancing more. That's something I always love to do. So instead of like signing up for a gym membership, yeah. maybe I should just take dance classes and see where that takes me. Yeah. You know, you, um, you, you've mentioned a few times that these things that you're thinking of doing and things ahead of you, and that, that's a big part of, and you haven't posted for a while, but it's a, that was a big part of your blog called Becoming Bunny. Yes, Becoming yeah. Somebody. Okay. Oh, the uh, the uh, URL is becoming bunny. Yeah, I right, right. That. Becoming <laughs> becomingbunny.tumblr.com, but it's becoming somebody is the name of the blog. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the last thing you you posted was actually did already happen, right? That was uh, going to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I was doing. I thought I was going to do like this countdown. Mm-hmm. Like, going to document everything on the way. That was just uh, two. That was my first international reporting experience. I got washed away in but, a, under all that. But like a true millennial, you are also. Th- not sure how long you'll be in this sort of business you're in right now, this multimedia journalism business, right? You're already thinking, well, what's going to be next? I'm thinking definitely about diversifying, which is why I went to Columbia to focus on my writing and any other skills that I could add to my repertoire. You know, I have like book ideas in mind. I have, like I said, social theories that I would like that like literally have been thinking about since college that I've been adding to all this time that I really want to get out. This year I really wanted to be very like self-expressed and not only using journalism but like exploring how I see the world and like what I can create visually. So you know after I get this project, this Afropunk project out, I will be starting school again but I do want to just explore storytelling in multiple ways. Mm, You have one more year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how is that program going? It's going really well. I actually had to take a year off because I was diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, wow. So I was really butting my, my head against my master's project, which is the reason why I went into school. Mm-hmm. Like to, I wanted to finish it there. So it's something I'm re- really passionate about, but I wasn't getting things done. Yeah, what um, sort of what led to that pe- uh, that diagnosis? Like, how did you know um, just something the, was up? Yeah, just the because it happened several times before on um, projects that I was just like, okay, there's something here because I'll finish like visual stuff really fast, but it was like the writing part that was difficult, or I should say, the kinds of stories that I want to do they're a little large. So it's just like the organizing of things and then the confidence that I felt of like how much I knew and all that stuff. But really what led me to even like seek out like what those symptoms actually were was the phrase functional depression. I don't know if that's the actual. Sounds right. Yeah, something like that. And 
somehow that led me to ADHD and I got to that website and the thing that stuck out was just like, whoa, on report cards saying you're not, or teachers like saying that you're not working to your potential. And oh, like yeah. that has followed me my whole life. And that was like the mind blown moment. And then I contacted my dean and she said there was options. So I took a break, mm-hmm. which was good because like I said, I had like the weekend I started Columbia was the, that Monday I started at NBC as a photo editor. And wow. I was also freelancing. So I was like, journalism like three times over and I was like burning myself out yeah yeah and you were able to keep working when you took the year off yes oh my gosh I had so many great opportunities Mm -hmm. like it actually was like a blessing in disguise and you know just learning to be gentle with yourself and like patience I'm not patient like I was just (laughs) like I'm ready to be international but I have to I took that pause because like I said I'm paying a lot Right. Or not even paid, but it's just like I'm putting a lot on my tab. You're investing in yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what was your... What? No, no, we were there. It okay. was, you know, we were we, we were talking about um, how, this, how the program was going right, and, right, right. and you got sidetracked. Right. So the program is awesome in terms of it help, helping me think bigger, that I'm capable of more. And the professors and the guest speakers and the workshops that you have access to and even just like that's why I think college should be free it's just like going into a space where it's dedicated to creating and thinking I feel like we segregate who we consider creative and then like you know not worship them but you know put them on a pedestal but I feel like everybody has that and everybody should be able to tap into that you know there's a (laughs) there's a lot wrong with the way we uh, handle money in this country but (laughs) It, would, it just seems logical that with the gajillions of dollars that's on the corporate end of this you know, economic spectrum, it would be worth their while to make colleges free, to invest in students, to invest in a workforce, to invest in the brain trust of this country, right? Yeah. Like, it, just, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I was a Bernie Sanders supporter until I couldn't be anymore. Even though I was uh, like believed in what he was talking about or inspired, I it took me a while to get on board with the free college thing. I was just like, how is that going to happen? Yeah. And it took me, you know, just thinking, marinating on it. But it was like, like we said before, like we're on a threshold. We need something new. Whatever's next, we are not there yet. So we actually, as a society, need to get there. So how can we do that? give everybody access to learning what's next. So I, know, I think what really tipped that thought over for me was, I think, I don't know what state, but it was like a coal country town that like the coal factory or the coal mine was cleared out and they bought in tech training and they oh, were getting okay. it. So it's here you have like 45-year-old former coal miners doing mm-hmm coding and they're getting it so it's just like the malleability of the mind and just like what we're capable of and i might have um i don't know if i have it all right all correct but i believe state colleges in tennessee are free i have to look that up but i haven't heard that there's, be... a, there's a red state that does uh, you know free state college maybe it's just community college but uh, you know they they do it yeah, yeah. So i mean there's something that happened in the 80s that was like a response to the 60s and 70s that it just really the in the idea of like individualism and i guess that's when like late stage capitalism maybe was mm-hmm. like kicking off 
yeah, to like well, where we are now. But well, under the sort of the Reagan era, the '80s, there was I think the birth of the the seriously the greed movement, mm-hmm. right? The the corporate wealth movement. And the idea yeah. of the bootstrap was really formulated and. Mm-hmm. Yes, At we're all on, we're all going to take care of ourselves. Yeah, and then I go back to my biology days, and it's just like we are made to believe that competition is what has fueled us, which it has, but not as much as cooperation. Yeah, which that's we a, don't appreciate. That's much. a big debate. We, you know, competition is often used to divide us. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the work that you have uh, that you've done. I, you know, I was looking at, I think the, maybe the sort of the most heartbreaking project that you did was a Saving Face. Mm-hmm. And that is about a, a girl named Maddie, right? And she received chemotherapy when she was under a year old, mm-hmm. right? And, and it, so it had a, sort of a devastating effect on her body. Right. You know, how did you kind of prepare yourself for that? Was that assignment or was... That was not an assignment. That mm-hmm. was part of... Um, the Missouri Photo Workshop. Oh, we, I want to talk about that. But, yeah. But, so, but how do you, you know, what did you, did you have to sort of, you know, fortify yourself a little bit, you know, against the, sort of the, uh, just the emotional involvement to shoot something like that? No, because she wasn't a sad person. Uh, the biggest concern for me was making sure that I didn't capture her in like a staring way. Like I was really coming in from the standpoint, like I said, of like capturing the whole like picture. So like she has this health issue, but then she also is like self-conscious mostly from that, but also she's a teenager. So she's self-conscious in ways that, so for me, it was just like the universal aspect that I'm going to focus on here is her being a teenager. And she loves boy bands and she loves going to concerts and hanging out with her friends, wants a boyfriend or wanted a boyfriend at that time. Um, haven't kept up with friends on Facebook. I'm friends with her mom on Facebook, but I wish I could have visited her, her more over mm-hmm. the last few years to continue with that idea, but I wasn't able to. Yeah, it was just instead of blocking myself off from like what, like the, the heaviness of what she has to deal with, because she was facing a potentially life threatening surgery to correct how her face that was looked. facial reconstruction yeah and, and mm-hmm. she there was something else with um i thought what there was something else with her bones or something like yeah that. the cartilage in her bones oh, okay. is what mm-hmm. the chemotherapy really um knocked out yeah. yeah so yeah it was just let's let's follow this young teenager mm-hmm. and so you you did that for the missouri photo workshop what what is that missouri photo workshop is one of the best workshops that i've done uh in terms of really getting like sharpening you so when I applied I had the only so I went from trying to do uh, New York City news to I wanted to now do national so the thing the first thing that I attempted was to go to Ferguson after the verdict uh, non non indictment right the fires had already been put out but I was really down about it and you know my mentor was like you should just go there and I was like I should go there so at the uh, workshop no 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 this oh. is before the workshop oh, so sorry, yeah. this was the first time that i went in, who's your mentor uh, michael camber at the bronx oh, documentary center yes <laughs> yeah so he told me that i should go did you go to the bronx documentary center i mean yeah so that were was you a student there yeah oh I was like all right a, we'll come back to that yeah Let's that was a this. big part of like where i am now oh i didn't know that oh what yeah. a great connection okay mm-hmm. let's come back so you so michael tells you go out just go there yeah right. so I do, and, you know, it's not, I'm in shock because I'm in this place that I've been watching on the news for, like, these last 
few months and then all these protests and I don't really know anybody trying to have activist friends in New York see if they have friends over there you know so I did make some connections but I was there by myself and I didn't really know what the hell I was doing and but I felt good about it because I saw you know I saw Adrice Latif there and other photojournalists that I've seen who've gone through the like visited us at the Bronx Documentary Center so and it felt like I was in the right place but the learning curve you know that was, I didn't really come back with anything that I felt really strongly about. In hindsight, I had something, if you like edit it right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're in the moment. And um, yeah. so I applied for the Missouri Photo Workshop under the idea that, you know, they prize themselves on having 40 or so photojournalists go into one town and search for a story. So for me, it was just like, how can I, I was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to like, enter a new place and then get access and report and photograph something. Mm -hmm. So that was probably one of the best things I've gotten to do because I never searched so hard for a story because you have to go out. They don't assign. You have to go and find something and they will knock your story down and send you back out. I was riding around on my bike for like two days before I got a story. How long was the uh, workshop for then? A week. Oh, that's all? Yeah. Wow. And you only have 400 frames. Holy cow. <laughs> I ended up, and I'm, I don't shoot that much, so uh-huh. I, I only shot like 250 something. You're a careful, slower shooter. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, film. <laughs> do you still shoot film? Uh, I haven't in a while, but mm-hmm. I do. That's how I got started. Yeah. But yeah, nothing extensive. So you apply for the workshop, they, they mm-hmm. give you room and board, or they? No, but I did get a scholarship, and then I didn't have housing, and sometimes they have because it's a big thing in the state, so they work with local people, like you could stay with them. I didn't have housing yet, and I just lucked out, and one of the restaurant owners let us stay, like three of us stay in her upstairs. Nice. Yeah. All right, well, so let's circle back to the Bronx Documentary Center. Were you part of the photo league, the Bronx Photo League? Yeah. You are? Mm-hmm. Or, so there's a youth photo league, right, and then mm-hmm. an adult photo league? So, so did you go from youth to adult? <laughs> no, I started volunteering at Bronx Documentary Center in 2013. Yes. yes. <laughs> My colleague from the Journal News had a show there, and I got there, and he was like, you have to be involved in this somehow. Mm-hmm. And I listened to him. Like that's Ricky Flores. He's awesome. Check out his work. He's um he has a lot I know of the name. Yeah, yeah, he has a uh it's part of Seis Desert and they have amazing, amazing archive of like the years of the the Bronx was burning those years in the seventies and eighties. So he was another guiding light. I've had many guiding lights in my career. Nice. And he's one of them. So I listen to him when he tells me something. <laughs> you said you volunteered. You were um, doing what all the volunteers do, uh, curating shows, working, hanging shows, working the front desk, uh, mentoring, anything like that? So I think the first thing was just helping out at events. At that time, they were just getting started a photography class on Fridays. So... Yeah, I went to that event, and then the next thing I went to was the class. And it was really cool because the beauty of the Bronx Documentary Center is that it's a springboard, and not even just literally in your career, but in your sense of self. So 
when I first walked into that class, I guess they weren't, they didn't have a lot, a lot going on that day. And I walked in, and he was like, hey, do you have your work? Because he looked at my work at the portfolio review that I did, my first portfolio review with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're looking at my work and here you have this person who's worked for New York Times for like double digit years and poets are nominated and he, he's telling a group of people like what I love about her work and how you can see <laughs> it's just like whoa okay I have something <laughs> and the other element that Bronx Documentary Center gave me or reinstated in me is the reason why I became a journalist was for the social aspect the social impact you know coming across August Sanders that was in my documentary photography class and well, that, that was at the Bronx Documentary Center. No, that was oh, that in college. Was yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. but it bought me back. So at that right. time, I'm four years removed from college. I had just done small town news, and you know, it kind of gets a little repetitive. And um, like I said, I had bigger ideas. So it helped remind me there's there's more to this than just saying you know this is happening here, what things mean, and like how to capture that beautifully, and you know. Just from that book that first introduced me to August Sanders, there was a line that has never left me. It's just like, the poor are the inexhaustible resource of society. And, you know, I feel like that has been a driving element of my interests. Who are the least amongst us, quote unquote, least Mm -hmm. amongst us? How are they faring? And how does that inform how we look at the center and the middle class? So Bronx Documentary Center, through that class in particular, but then just like, you know, he's been, uh, Mike has been in the business for so long, so he'll have like Eugene Richards come, or like <laughs> Todd Heisler, or Victor Blue, and then that, how they were so focused on making sure that the community was part of what we were doing. That was really, you know, in, important for me to be a part of and witness. And yeah. So you come back from the, the workshop and you get involved with Bronx Documentary Center. Then you're, you start freelancing, right? Or was that all part of it? That's all sort of simultaneous. I think I had dabbled in freelancing mm-hmm. just around the same time I started being involved there. Then the, um, the ceremonies, ceremony of goodbyes mm-hmm. were the, um, the 101st. Uh, leaving for overseas assignments, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was that a, an assignment or was that something you also... That was an assignment yeah. for mm-hmm. the Journal News. Oh, okay. So that was still my newspaper days. And that was my first front page nice. photo. <laughs> they didn't pick the photo that I wanted. Oh, yeah. But well, I mean, you, you, have, a, you have a whole life with editors, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no shade on editors. We love you. Yes. Yeah, that was my first front page photo story and mm-hmm. then i also did video that day oh okay so that was a really hectic day but mm-hmm. it was fun what were your sort of conversations like with uh, the people with the soldiers leaving you know at one point i was just like photographing random like whatever looked picturesque or but then i realized that people were saying goodbye potentially for the last time like mm-hmm. you just don't know and no matter what people don't return the same so once I realized that, I started just watching and snapping. And whenever I felt like I got something good, I went up and talked to them about their, the details of their 
situation. Mm -hmm. And and so when you're shooting something like that, are you working alone or do you have an assistant? That one I was working with a reporter. Okay, so you were handling the photo and the video and Mm -hmm. the reporter was handling the writing? Yeah, I had three cameras on my body. Did you really? Yeah. (laughs) What do you you use? At that time, that was uh, two Canon bodies and... Five Ds. No, because I was like on the low rung oh, of okay. the. <laughs> I was did, mostly they didn't the give video you rebels, person. Did they? No, no, okay. no, no. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't rebels. Right. But it wasn't any Mark II nothing. That's yeah. right. <laughs> um. So yeah, not, and then I had a video camera that was a Canon that was like to tape. So yeah, yeah, yeah. really big. Were you shooting film in Albany, or did you start shooting film at the Bronx Doc Center? I started film in. Uh, Albany. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when you were uh, at Bronx Documentary, that was not a big transition. Uh, when If you were uh, using their darkroom and... Or maybe they didn't have a darkroom. They didn't room have then. a darkroom. That's room, right. Yeah. That's pretty recent. That's and then I think recent. within yeah. a year or two of us... Um, so the same people would come to this photo class. And then eventually we became a photo league. And I was part of this project that, you know, helped inspire that we... Mm-hmm. It was the first collaboration that Bronx Documentary Center did with a publication, the Global Post. And, you know, they picked four of us to, like, work on something. And then from that, they were like, hey, we should work on stories as a group. And, yeah, so we did. Yeah. And then you um, you get involved with uh, Afropunk. When was, when was the first time you shot Afropunk? The first time I went to Afropunk was 2012. Oh, okay. And then I said I'd never come back without my camera. Mm-hmm. I skipped the next year, and then I went the 2014, and that was the summer um, that Mike Brown was killed. And so from that, you know, that was the Afropunk I saw was um, an opportunity to explore opinions from the black community. Oh, so okay. that's why you call it uh, is Afropunk Times Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah. So I always had have looked at Afropunk as more than a concert, which I finally got to explore last year. But yeah, I just, it was the biggest gathering of black people that I could, from what I could tell, right after, there were like three deaths that summer. Right, that was, yeah. So it was really heavy, but also really joyous when you get there. Mm -hmm. And just to see how funky five people are and like how um, profound their... It's a statements are. It's a pretty diverse group that shows up to Afropunk. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's like diversity and diversity. Right. <laughs> diversity squared. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so with that, you're doing multimedia. You're doing everything, right? You're writing. You're shooting video. You're sh- now. Yeah, this yeah. last year. So half of the year was kind of um, half research in uh, France and UK, but then by the time I got to Johannesburg, I knew that there was something happening. So then that's when I applied for the Pulitzer Center grant to help cover traveling costs. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what you um, sort of wrote for that grant or just sort of overall? Mm, something, it was like the globalization of Afropunk. I know that was the title and something about how, oh yeah, it, how it invokes the black musical past of jazz and blues and even early hip hop in going global and you know spreading african-american experience and resistance and inspiring 
different um, societies that way. So this real kind of American music culture, right, yeah. going global. Yeah, and like black people have been doing that for forever. And mm -hmm. it's like really cool to like see that in this concert now, which is like what I want, a perspective I'd like more people to consider. Because mm. uh, what I'm doing is like a cursory view. I could make a book out of this if I could. I want to. Mm -hmm. Or a documentary series. I don't know. Like, there's so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but first, let me finish what I started. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See how I get ahead there? Graduate, yes. yes. And then, um, so what was the, uh, it was NBC News that you were a uh, photo editor for? Yes, for yeah. the dot com. So then how did that come about and what was that experience like? Uh, I think it was like one of those postings from Facebook. Wow. That I only applied because the, they gave a direct email. Like, it's really heartbreaking to, like, apply for a big corporation on their, like, big web portal. It's yeah. Like, did it get there? Do I oh, have, have to no upload idea. my right. PDF? No Do I have idea. to write it? Yeah. So <laughs> this was a direct email, and they got back to me right away. And then they forgot about me, and then I had to remind them. <laughs> and so, yeah, then they interviewed me. Yeah. So what kind of work were you handling? Oh, on the desk? What kind of, yeah. Producing photo galleries. Reporters would make requests for images f to go with their stories. And were you a, a primary editor? Like, were you actually picking things that would then go out into the world or show up on the website? Or, yeah, so yeah. I was a night, night shift. Oh, wow. And so when I came in, everybody left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was really cool, too, just to have that kind of responsibility. And I would always try and get something a little different from what the news cycle was, if I could help it. I always wanted, and I never got to, do a gallery of, like, all the fires that have happened that summer. Was it mostly local? or No, it was oh. international stuff. Oh, okay. So it was really nice because in front of me, one, I got to see how the editor side of photojournalism works, their demands, how filled up their inbox gets, and you know, appreciating the power to tell people like, hey, look at this, mm -hmm. you know, as an editor, that's, that's nice to I, do. I've seen the operation at Getty and it's, you know, one person and multiple screens and this constant stream of messages coming in mm -hmm. and all that. Is it similar to that? Yep. I yeah. had three screens. <laughs> one was just for the photo portal. So uh -huh. it was like, you know, something, and it was election year and there was so much happening. Mm. So, and we also had a connection or we also worked with the TV side sometimes. Were you working on election night? I was. What was that like? I didn't get to be in the. I didn't get to spend time in the newsroom. They sent me to. I forgot which hotel, but a few blocks away, Hillary Clinton was going to uh, have her party. Right. And so there was a time photographer and editor, and they wanted me to be there to get the photos to come back with the photos. What was supposed to be the celebratory photos. Yes. So like, I'm down there, I'm just doing like schoolwork or something, and I'm never getting called up stairs to go <laughs> assist. Mm -hmm. And so eventually they call me back. So when I left, it was like really buzzing, and then they had like, you had to have special badges, and certain people, and like more people in the newsroom than usual, and mm -hmm. like there's, that's the TV studio as well and then when i came back it was silent <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. I, I just had nicole crane on the show and she was sent uh to um alabama i believe mm -hmm. uh, to photograph it, it and and in a similar way like so get the photographs when hillary wins blah blah, blah you know and and so her experience that night also turned out very differently mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so that was interesting to see mm-hmm 
You know, you had uh, mentioned that uh, you were a Bernie supporter and, and all, and um, not uh, really a Hillary supporter. And so I'm, I'm not asking you this question as a representative for black people, <laughs> but you did you do speak to uh, a lot of people in, in the, uh, you know, when you're at the Afropunk events mm-hmm. and you have a, an interest in this, um, so this African diaspora and mm-hmm. all. So I'm just wondering, you know, I, I, I have this, uh, this sort of this theory, this idea that, um, you know, white liberalism has this kind of utopian sort of idea, like, we're just going to have, we can just have everything, we're just going to try to get everything. And, and I always feel like uh, in among the African American community, there's a, there's a more practical, progressive idea, we're going to, we're going to just sort of take it incrementally, uh, because you're coming from a place where you have more direct experience Right. With discrimination, with a denial of rights. Right. right. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think I always thought that's maybe why there was maybe more tepid support for Hillary Clinton in the last election. But you it definitely can't speak for all black people. Yeah. But um, <laughs> what I saw was that if there's like this honesty that I think that black people bring to the table is just like, well, technically none of them really represent what we really need right um but i think there was more um openness towards bernie even though he had some racial gaffes he did yeah and for me i don't expect everybody to be everything all the time and as far as I was concerned, Bernie Sanders was a protesting hippie that became a politician that just kept saying he had the same message throughout the whole time. Mm-hmm. So um, we get bogged down in like a vote that he had, which was whether it was for gun rights or right. whether it was for, right. Right. So it's just like, yeah, he did that then. But like, look what he's saying now and look what everybody else is saying. Are mm-hmm. you really going to? Really? And look at the track record. Right, right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that didn't bother me as much, but it's like not something to forget either. Mm-hmm. But I think what was really interesting, I think the Blackish was the show. They had an episode that was like a like election esque, and it was like the line that the day after the election, it was like white people got to feel like what it was to be black. Mm. So. You know, even in the recession, and we're talking about middle class this, middle class that, and my question from my master's thesis, like, what about the people that were always left behind, that have always been in this? And that goes back to my idea of, like, discounted, and that includes the people that are marginalized. And so, I don't know, you said you said we have this, like, incremental approach. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say incremental, but it's just, like, Realistic? Fundamental. Okay. Yeah, there's this this base level that I feel like liberals skip over because (laughs) they want to feel good about things. Right. Um, But for me, it's just like if your liberalism and your just society actually mimics the same outcomes from the unjust society, you need to check yourself. Mm -hmm. So if I still see police brutality from a group of people that have always been like that kind of force to keep people in line, you know, I'm not going to go and celebrate that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, not going to villainize everybody. It's just, it doesn't work. And we have to be honest about that. But you can't do that as a politician. Yeah. Because then you're going to have like the police union against you. Yes. Yeah. 
I think there's this this depth of conversation that we don't have and I think news doesn't allow us to have by and large. For example, that does include like more realistic, um, or not realistic, but like fundamental like changes. Um, I thought when you're at the news desk, you get the live feed of like a press conference and one, I think it was Alton Sterling, he um, was killed in front of a convenience store and the the family's lawyer, you know, deep into the press conference, he says something really interesting. He's like, we need these police to get retrained. We need to have higher standards and we need to pay them more also. And I was like, that's such an interesting thing. You don't hear that often, but that's not what was cut or that's not what was broadcast. Oh, no, really? Yeah. So it's just like, you know, they only have a few minutes in between commercials and stuff. Yeah. So, and I... And in terms of just having those like fundamental shifting ideas, yeah, I think we do have those, but um, those are overlooked. And that's why I like to focus on Afropunk in the way I do, because I think there is so much that it does that beyond the fashion and the music that it's known for. Mm -hmm. Since 2014, I've been looking at it as a political space. Hmm. And it's only become more so, and now they have solution sessions, which is where they talk oh. about. It's a podcast that talks about root causes they, and do like they invite. People yeah, they have and, a whole bunch of guests. Yeah. They have they had nine episodes, so people should check that out. Mm-hmm. Is it called Afropunk or is it Afropunk Solution Sessions? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, what have you been working on lately? <laughs> Just thought of Janet Jackson song. Um, <laughs> I am currently so. A few things, maybe too many things. <laughs> um, one thing is I want to follow a neurosurgeon, a Haitian neurosurgeon. Um, he lives in the States. He's a Harvard fellow and a neurosurgeon from Mount Sinai Hospital. He was a resident there. And he is going to teach Haitian surgeons basic principles of brain surgery. Oh, because neurological care is severely lacking in Haiti compared to neighboring countries. So that's one story I actually just came from starting today. It was more exploratory, just to gain more understanding for myself, but that's the next project that I'm going to be working on. Oh, do, do you visit Haiti? Do you still have a family I've in never, Haiti? I've never been there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Your parents haven't been back since? No, it's kind of one of those never look back mm-hmm. kind of thing. Do you know of any relatives there? Or? I do have relatives on my mom's side, but it's funny because like a lot of my friends and my dad's friends and family and my mom's family are all here. Oh, okay. So for the most part, we're mm-hmm. here in Canada and stuff. So you're going to follow this uh, neurosurgeon for a little bit? Yes. Will, will that be part of work you show at Columbia? That, well, I, have my, I also have my master's project that I had to finish. So my master's project is based on my hometown of Yonkers, which has seven hills. And uh, all the poor areas are in the bottom of the hill. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, so I'm exploring that. <sighs> and like you, you also do t- you talk about urban planning and discrimination, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, it, it, it has a history with redlining and mm-hmm. Robert Moses, and right? Yeah. But, yeah, I didn't know about this. So, so, so like, the sinusoidal wave runs through Yonkers and all the poor people at the bottom of the, the curve. Right, so oh. it's just, like, that idea of left behind. Wow. So I'm exploring. Mm-hmm. 
So I tell a story of a school that was ultimately knocked down. I tell a story of the fight for that school. And then I also have some, and this is the next element I have to do this semester, um, data analysis. Uh, I won't go any further because okay. <laughs> I, this, is, this is very important to me. You can't know that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, there is a, de- a data component that I want to sure. include that will kind of give a different perspective on how we look at gentrification. Mm. And I'm coming from a standpoint of like the last 500 years. Only? <laughs> yeah. So like I said, like I, I do these projects that are just like, they're pulling from all these different places, but they're so important to me to complete because mm-hmm. I just feel like so much of reporting and news is just like, this bad thing is happening and this is how this person feels about it. This person doesn't think it's happening. Mm. Back to you. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And, yep. you know, people are getting tired of that. I'm getting yes. tired of that. Yeah. So The news is getting harder and harder to listen to. And, and in part because there's so much, it's so, there's so much going on and so many lies and it's so hard to keep track of everything. But yeah. And, and there is so much of it that's, that feels shallow mm-hmm. in the reporting. Right? And it's partially budget constraints, but it's also, like, I would love for networks to just, like, cover something else. Like, mm-hmm. I know this might sound really crazy, but I know there was a lot of indictments. Not, but yes, yesterday, yesterday there were, yeah, two, there were a lot two of big sets of guilty pleas. Yes. Oh, right, right. Guilty so cases. Right. for me, now we have this whole, like, every outlet is, like, covering this. Yeah. But what's more important, or more, it's not more important. It's very important that we cover those. But... I don't feel like I learned anything new. It's not, just like... Not after the first hour. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? So it's just like, no. tell me that thing happened. And like, I already knew some say shadiness mm-hmm. was like highly probable. Like, yeah. But what was really interesting, two things that I saw yesterday that were like mind-blowing. Well, three things. One, I saw a police video where I say, and my response to that on Twitter was, every time I see videos like this, all I can think of is how the first iteration of America's police force were slave catchers. And the next day, I think it was the BBC or the Independent from overseas, Mm -hmm. they're saying that August, this August marks the 500th anniversary year from when slavery started in America. Mm. And then there's also this uh, prison boycott, like 17 prisons or 17 states. Yes. Yeah. And they're boycotting that specifically because they're saying this is slavery. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not surprising whatever happens with Trump and whatever treachery that is uncovered. That's like, okay, yeah, I knew that. Like, I knew that since he his first speech that he announced what he... You mean uh, coming down the escalator and talking about Mexicans? Yeah, it's yeah. like, what? Yeah. Anyway, I knew that since then. Nothing about mm-hmm. what has happened. Well, he, uh, speaking of uh, urban planning, he's also had to settle a case where he was discriminating against African-Americans uh, renting in his properties, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't need him to have, be on tape saying the N-word, mm-hmm. like... That doesn't change anything for me from him. And he could have not said it and like it's still been the same. But for me, as a like if I wasn't in that position to choose what is covered, keeping in mind that people want to hear something else yeah. every once in a while, I thought that was such an important that's a huge story. It's not like it's not all connected. Yeah. Right? Uh I'll, and I'll give props to NPR for doing a, a somewhat better job of 
keeping the news going in different directions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they... That's why I love Brian Lear. They t- exactly. Hi, so Brian. It's like, he, just, he took me somewhere else and I needed to go right. there. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I love that style. And, you know, I... If I could champion... WMYC. Yeah. <laughs> if I could champion anything, um, uh-huh. it's just like the niece for a news peg in journalism. I, it's loose for me. Yeah. It's just like, if it's important, say it. Right. So uh, did we miss anything that you're, you're doing a lot? You're working a lot? Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on, yeah. especially being a person from various identities at the center of this political moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you do mention you grew up in mostly white neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. I was only black around my class for like many, many, many years. Yeah. And yeah. then in high school, I was one of three. Right. And, and so part of your your mission, so to speak, uh, on, on studying the African diaspora is also figuring out who you are. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For I remember in college, I was like, I'm not Haitian. I'm not America. I'm just me. Or American. <laughs> I'm just me. But I'm all those things. Mm-hmm. And I think someone said it really nicely somewhere on the Internet. But <laughs> shouldn't that be a positive thing that we have people from other countries? It's like we can connect to those countries yeah. through who's here instead of looking at anybody everybody is like the other yes that is the moment we're in right now more maybe more so than in in a while right <laughs> it's always been there but yeah. now it's just like yeah, yeah in your face yeah well thank you for coming in thank you for this lovely conversation oh great <laughs> <laughs> all right well bye everyone bye thanks for listening